Hello, Frank. My dad kidnapped me once. A holiday is what this will be. You and me, son. On 12th of October, 2004, my dad popped out to buy a bottle of milk and never came back. Frank Burton, that's my name as well, I'm Frank Jr. Of course, your investigation. I know about your secret flat. I have an irrational fear of traffic wardens. Stop sticking your nose into matters that don't concern you. I was Frank Burton's wife and Frank Burton's mother. That was everything I am. Maybe it's like kosher or halal. Kosher or halal bacon, that's a new one. Everything I am. You and me, son. Everything I am. Everything I Am is the brand new novel by the author and podcaster Frank Burton. Available as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook, which is currently available for Name Your Price. Find all the details at frankburton.co.uk. Welcome to Rag Bag. My name's Frank Burton. I've just been on a call to Australia, social distancing at its finest. My guest this time is the brilliant Liz Frensham. We've been talking about subjects including coping with a lockdown experience. Liz's ADHD, her long-running career as a musician, and of course her brand new album. We'll hear from Liz herself soon, but first. Here's the title track from that album. It's called Love and Other Crimes. Folks, right? 
Tell me the story about the new album. How, how did you put that together and where did it come from? Well, I'd had a couple of rough years and I was beginning to find touring to be too exhausting. And I guess I came, I came off a particularly full-on bout of touring Touring and recording, I was working with a Canadian artist, um, Scott Cook, who's an incredible songwriter. You should um, look him up. But we we did this one month of touring and we were meant to be learning all of his new songs. And then in on the days off, we came back to my studio and we recorded this album, supposedly live, but it ended up working out less live because Scott realised his voice couldn't handle all the gigs and all the recording as well. So he ended up doing um, some of the vocals later on. But I ended up as the engineer for those sessions, which I didn't expect at all. Um, it was to do with the fact that my husband, who's usually the engineer that works in this studio, um, started at the police academy, got a whole new job. But yeah, it just sort of left us in the lurch and I, so I was using my budding engineering skills under pressure. And when the whole thing was finished, I just sort of collapsed pretty much in a, in a heap. And I was also still suffering grief from my uh, my dad's death that happened quite suddenly the year before. So I was in the winter. I had one gig happening just once a week with this incredible um, Dobro guitarist, Pete Fiddler, who was a really dear friend of mine. And it was just the highlight and the bright point of my life, just playing with him at the, in the corner of this pub. And... We just were playing really well together. I think that's the only good thing about all that recording and all that touring was that my, my playing was really sharp and feeling good. The rest of my life felt shit out, but that felt really good. So as we were playing in the corner of the pub, I proposed to him, why don't we make an EP? So we met up and I started throwing him songs I hadn't recorded. And I realized there was bunches of, there were so many songs. Um, because I'd done a songwriting challenge every year since 2013 called February Album Writing Month. Amazing challenge. But it just had left me with all this unrecorded material and I suddenly started to sift through it and realised that some of it was worth recording. So what started as an EP turned into um, a whole album. Pretty much six weeks from the first recording session to when I handed it over to be mixed which is amazing. It's only because I had the deadline because I wanted a particular, a particularly talented guy to mix it, a guy called Eric Jaskowiak, who was working out of Nashville at the time. He had all these tours with Daryl Scott happening and he only had this one window of a few days that he could mix my album. So I suddenly had a deadline. And so me here in this little studio, engineered, produced, and then just got a whole bunch of really talented friends together and made that album, yeah, out of all those songs, yeah. It just feels like it's a musically diverse album in the sense that there's different kind of styles of music in there. You've got a bit of blues, a bit of folk, a bit of everything is going on. And also it's kind of lyrically diverse as well. And there's just songs about different subjects, different kind of human emotions and different human um, relationships. I'm just wondering, is that something that you kind of decided on at the start? Are you going to make it really diverse or is that just the way that it turned out? Well, I'm a really diverse writer for a start, naturally, just because I play the bass. 
And because I've been a professional accompanist for so long, which means that it's been my bread and butter to be able to go and play like a jazz gig or a, like a wedding gig or play a whole bunch of original material for a, a certain kind of writer. I've been playing very multi-genre for my whole career, um, but also with the bass when you're writing a song, it's such a stripped back thing. It, it leaves a lot for the imagination as far as genre. Because I've played bossa novas and I've played, you know, folk songs and I've I've played in grungy pop bands, all that stuff comes out when I write and all that stuff I can hear in my head. So I guess that for a start probably informed the the pool of songs I was working with. Also, um, February Album Writing Month involves co-writing too, so you might, there's a song on the album called Dirt Coloured Glasses that came from a, like a solo piece of a piano improvisation that was sent to me from a guy I'd never met. There's an, actually, there's a co-write with a guy from the UK, um, Matt Blick. It's called Don't Get Too Close. And that, that came just from a set of lyrics that he sent me that were very um, not in the style of lyrics I usually write. It was from a, a very, I think you'll find that that, that, that song um, stands out lyrically from the rest in that the character is quite dubious. The rest of the songs come from a very um, a vulnerable, open place, but that, that song's almost like the, the warning on the album of what happens if you get too closed off. Verses of that song, if you can make that song's like the verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook line. He sent me all the verses and a completely different chorus, just as lyrics. Oh, he's such a great writer too. Um, I've, and I've also never met him too, but I love this song that we wrote together. And I added the two lines of pre-chorus and and replaced the chorus with the hook, uh, and then put the music and um, melody to it and sent it back. And he really loved it so. It was great to finally record it. But I guess, yeah, getting back to your original question, it's diverse because of who I am as a writer. But um, as far as themes, that emerged really, really, really strongly when I realised I had really, I was really emotionally connected to making an album just because I'd had such a hard time. And when I thought about it, it I was really trying to explore the fact that I wanted to stay open and I still wanted to have relationships, but basically relationships are hard and painful and always complicated. Like there's never a simple, happy relationship in your life. 
And um, yeah, that's really the thread that, or, or you, you could even say that was the net that held certain songs and let the other ones slip through. And that's what ended up um, as the album. And that's why it's called Love and Other Crimes because, yeah, it definitely felt like um, I felt bruised from relationships, but I still wanted to have faith in them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's really good. I, th I think it's a, it's a good approach to take in terms of kind of when you're writing about real life and things that happen in real life a lot of songs that you might come across might just be just entirely kind of romantic or sentimental or, or, or stuff like that or cliche yeah. or whatever you want to say. But um, it's um, uh, in particular, I really like the song that you wrote about your dad, obviously your, your father's death and everything. And I just found that like a really emotional song, but also it was a very kind of down to earth song as well. Yeah, well, he's a pretty down-to-earth character. I mean, and I'm very like him, but we've, you know, we, I've always had a really complicated relationship to him too. He wasn't somebody, he was never, he was never like a very encouraging or soft or, yeah, he wasn't a warm, cuddly character, but he was intelligent and fiery and he almost ex inspired me by example rather than encouragement if you can imagine and that song I guess is is complicated in term um, it uses that metaphor of ugliness like beautiful like you know so something that's good but but still ugly and and I guess that was my way of trying to work out feelings that I um, had and conflicts that I had with him that I never resolved when he died so suddenly so I mean, write, write, writing's really amazing that way. It's, it's like therapy. <laughs> you can yeah. write a song and then suddenly feel like it was really important to get that song in the album because it almost, it was a really important part of having closure about, about our relationship. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Uh, do, do you, do you see that as being like maybe a thing that you do in your songwriting generally? Like, like one moment it might be kind of like, real life detail and kind of down to earth stuff and then the next moment it might be kind of up in the clouds sort of thing i love poetry and i read a lot of it but there's this awkward line well not awkward it's like just really super fine line you have to tread as a lyricist if you want to get that really quick heart connection from a lyric because the lyric has to be so and also the music is already throwing a lot of emotional color into a song and so you've yeah. got to be careful how how florid and also how masked you make the lyrics because the person who's taking part in the song is having more thrown at them and putting them in a certain place so you have to walk this line of poetry but stripped bare enough to let the music speak and so I yeah I've I've definitely think some some of my songwriting is definitely more direct and then some is maybe more poetic but I try to adhere at least to that one idea of showing rather than telling trying to use the senses to invite people to see pictures or feel things or smell things or hear things rather than telling them what they're supposed to feel. 
And I think that's probably what guides me most when I look at what I've written and try to choose what to edit or what what feels strong to pursue is is what what comes alive in in senses in my mind and also just has a bit of openness for somebody else to put their own experience in so it's sort of got to be a space that's open and big enough for somebody to sit in it and have their own very personal um connection yeah 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 i i think that's one of the things that's good about the song that you did about your dad is that it's very it it sounds you can listen to it and it's very personal you can tell that it's something very personal to you but also people can listen to it and think about their own fathers you know what i mean and feel something that way you know yeah, well, I'm luckily, um, it, it, was, it was awkward putting it out there in the world, but I'm, I feel lucky to have been blessed by people writing back and telling me about their own dads in response. So I feel like that is my sign that that song is successful, you know. So thanks. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, 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 I do. I do. I do. <laughs> I've, just, I've, just, uh, I've, I've just published a book about my fictional relationship with my fictional dad. It kind of listening to your song kind of made me think about that that the process that I went through of composing that I don't know why I'm mentioning that now I'm just I'm just bragging about having written a book really. Um, oh, so. oh man! I, round of applause! I yeah I find writing a song you know is is hard enough for me. That's that's yeah I don't think I'll ever be writing a book, and you can see from my blog how often I write a blog post. <laughs> So I definitely, standing ovation for writing a novel at all, however, whatever it is. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well I, but the thing is, I, I can't do what you do. So it's kind of, uh, it's one of those things where I, I can, um, I could listen to a song and think, oh, I, could, I could never do anything like that. But like other people think, you know, that what, what I do is amazing. So it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, people do what they're good at, I guess. Yeah, totally. No, I'm. Yeah, I'm grateful for all the artists in my world, for sure. We have such fun, no need for money, kiss a blue-eyed boy. He calls me honey, got pretty red eye with a wagon tail. Live your dreams, throw your hesitations in the well, 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 deep in the well. Well, I started playing electric bass when I was a teenager. My brother played electric bass and I looked up to my brother, my older brother, and he introduced me to all the music that I loved at that time. I particularly loved Elton John and James Taylor, the kind of writing 
that those guys did. And what I love about bass is it's a, you, you get inside somebody's song process in like this beautiful, simple way. The bass line kind of shows you a lot about a song and how it's constructed. And so my brother also used to leave his bass set up with the amplifier and the headphones in his room. And so when he was, he was like working and I was still at school. And so he didn't come home from work till like five or six, but I got home from school at three o'clock in the afternoon. And my mother or my brother didn't know that I used to sneak in his room and, and um, play his bass along to his records. Well, he didn't know until I broke the needle of his um, record player. <laughs> Seems funny talking about um, vinyl. I guess the kids do know about vinyl these days, don't they? Because it's like, it's <laughs> yes. like this quirky fringe they thing. Yeah, they don't necessarily um, own any, but they might, they know what it is. <laughs> But the idea, I mean, I, I always think about how easy it is to learn things these days compared to back then. Like now you just look on the internet and the lyrics and the chords and the tabs and everything, just whatever, it's just all vomited out onto the screen. Whereas if I wanted to learn a James Taylor song, yeah, they just, they don't know. They don't know what we had to suffer to get the knowledge that they get so easily. <laughs> but anyway, um, getting back to your question, I became quite proficient with electric bass, but I had a major limitation in that I only used my index finger on my left hand and my thumb, which meant, meant that when I did eventually start playing um, with friends, I had my boyfriend at the time, my very first boyfriend, he was a really great musician and he kept trying to encourage me to use proper fingering. And I just was completely resistant because I was having too much fun and I didn't want to have to start again. I loved being able to play with other people. It was so great. That's why I'm a natural bass player. Just the instant being able to learn a song really quickly and then being with connecting with another musician is just, you know, it's my drug, my life drug. So he basically came up with this kind of sly strategy of trying to shame me by saying that my, I didn't play a real bass because he was a big bluegrass nut and like listened to a lot of new acoustic music, um, you know, David Grisman and Tony Rice and a lot of these US musicians and they all have acoustic basses. Well, actually, Newgrass Revival didn't. That was, that was my argument for staying on um, electric bass. But, <laughs> but anyway, he basically kept telling me and shaming me for my electric bass in that genre until... With his help, I finally purchased this big blonde plywood double bass and put it in the corner of my room and looked at it and thought, mm, there's no way this ADHD girl is ever going to be able to play that. I mean, I didn't think ADHD girl because back then I didn't know I was ADHD, but I did know I was somebody that never finished anything and couldn't stick to anything. So... You know, gradually, to my surprise, um, through mainly a lot of jam sessions at music festivals with a lot of gaffer tape worn or, uh, like wound around my blistered fingers, I, yeah, I suddenly um, was able to transfer what I knew about the electric bass onto the double bass. And then because I was using correct technique, thanks to my, my boyfriend's um, strict attention, yeah, I found myself in bands and just didn't look back, yeah. Ended up in the conservatorium in Sydney studying jazz age 26 with this massive instrument in my hands. 
That's excellent. And um, just in terms of the, I hope you don't mind me ask questions about ADHD, but um, when were you diagnosed in the end? I was, I think about 37 or 38. Um, okay, so oh, pretty late then. Yeah, and it was, it was the best thing ever, getting that diagnosis. It's funny how so many people balk and they're like, and they, some people want to jump down your throat and say, oh, no, you shouldn't label yourself like that. But they don't understand how helpful the labels are and the medication um, because it's like when you, when you get proper information about how your brain works, you can actually do something. I used to think I was so lazy and stupid for years and I'd see people managing to do things that I just couldn't stick to and get done and I just thought, I must be the worst person on earth. And then when I finally, somebody handed me some proper information and said like neurochemically, you are different. You have to do life differently. Uh, and I can now, because I am not stupid and I'm definitely not lazy. I can now design a life that has the requisite amount of cognitive stimulation. So I can design challenges and things to get me to get my brain stimulated enough to stick to things and get them done. I can, I know that I need deadlines. I know that I need to keep changing up my systems all the time or else I can't finish things. And you can even see from that point in my, my life, um, how much better organized and how, how much happier, happier I was pretty much from that point. So, yeah. How, how is that in terms of music? Has that made your life easier as a musician? having that diagnosis what's interesting like i don't i think my shrink says the two things an adhd person needs to get right in life to have a successful life is to marry the right person and get the right job <laughs> i have to let my husband tell you whether he he's the right person but um i definitely know i picked the right job i mean adhd people have have to work a lot harder to get you know, the same kind of like little highs out of life that people get from normal. People get little dopamine hits all over the place from all kinds of things. But when you're ADHD, you've got to do something a little bit more extreme, which is why there's so many ADHD people in jail. And, and there's also so many of them like in extreme sports or on stage because there's a great, you get a great adrenaline rush and dopamine hit from jumping out in front of a bunch of people and doing something scary. So I think definitely ADHD helped me choose my job without me even knowing I had it. Also spontaneity and the ability to just without thinking respond to a situation is not so good in so many aspects of life but it is really good on stage. That's what you need to be able to do. You need to be able to just respond and make make something work out of whatever you're faced with. So I, I think that did make um, being a musician a really great thing to, to do with ADHD. But it has actually, it's always made it hard on the organisational point of view, on all the boring kinds of things, you know, trying to keep taxes and things like that straight and paperwork. And, and I also think um, just pursuing a business is pretty hard when you're ADHD. So I don't think I've ever pursued the actual business side of my career to the extent that maybe I would if I didn't have that 
handicap, I guess, yeah. I'm writing this song to impress you While fighting this need, repressing the symbols that moves me to move to a place by your side Sending out lines to arrest you I'm just wondering about your experience as a musician, because I know that you've been a musician for a long time and everything like that. And um, I'm just wondering how you feel now, having had a number of years experience under your belt. I'm talking from a personal point of view, because I've been a writer for a long time and I was, I was okay when I started. Um, but I just feel like having done it for like 20 years or whatever, I'm a million times better than I was when I started. Also, I find it a lot easier than I did when I was in my 20s, for example. Is that how you feel about music? I think what I've noticed 20 years, like as a full-time professional, like that being your job. So having that kind of responsibility about it. I mean, definitely um, I'm so much better than, um, than I was, but I think I mostly noticed that I'm more, I'm just more bulletproof. I can, I can get away with so much more. I can fix things on the fly in a way that a lot of people wouldn't notice. I think that's the biggest skill that I've picked up over that time because there's so much that can go wrong. Um, I've just done so many gigs where I've showed up and like the fallback's been terrible. I couldn't hear myself or like, there's just, I think it's that kit bag of um, coping strategies that really makes the difference between you when you start out and you after 20 years is that whatever the situation, however you feel, whatever's gone wrong, you're going to play. You're, it's almost like your base level. Ah, sorry, nice pun there. My, <laughs> um, the level of you playing at your worst is just way higher. Um, so it means that if you get hampered by uh, a situation that isn't ideal, you can still play in a way that most people wouldn't notice, wasn't like at, your, at the top of your game. But I guess besides that, I, it's hard to notice that I play that much better because my, my inner critic and my musical imagination for what I want to be able to do is always running way ahead of where I am. 
So I, I still feel clumsy playing the bass because I can still hear the way I want it to sound. And as the years go on, that gets more and more precise. And I think the other frustration about playing full time is that you, your time mostly gets swallowed up in admin and learning repertoire, which is fine. But when you, if you're learning a song for a singer songwriter, even for yourself, where you're going to be singing, the kind of bass playing required doesn't really work your technique. Like I miss when I was studying, um, just because it's the only time in my life that I've had hours to look at scales and try to, I mean, I remember when I used to be transcribing solos from bassist and it was just so amazing, like to like step inside the shoes of um, like Paul Chambers or somebody like that, a really amazing musician. That's what I miss. And I crave that maybe I might be able to change my life slowly to have a bit more time so I can work on my own technique because I'm never going to be happy. You know, I'm sure I play a lot better than I used to be, but I still don't play half as good as I want to. <laughs> Do you see yourself kind of uh, getting better with that as well? Yeah, well, I'm definitely, I've definitely made a very conscious decision to um, not spend as much of my year in future. If, when we get let out of doors, <laughs> I don't want to be like going away for weeks at a time to play the same set every night for an artist. Um, I'm actually doing um, a vocal teaching course at the moment to try to establish a business out of here, out of my own studio so that I can actually set aside a certain amount of hours to be working for a certain wage. And then I can be more intentional about the time that I have in between and not spending unpacking bags or, you know, unpacking my own psyche from having to live in somebody else's space for like three weeks on end or, you know, right. in a van with somebody. So that's the thing that people often don't think about when they think about what would be hard about touring. I, the psychological hard stuff is, I mean, I developed an anxiety disorder from touring, um, which I'm only just getting over now. I've been, um, over the last couple of years, been sort of pulling back from doing so much of that. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, once this vocal teaching business gets more established to being able to just set aside a certain amount of hours for students and then having the rest of the time to divide up into my own writing time and recording time and practice time. Yeah. Cool. Okay. How far are you into that uh, business? Have that started? Uh, I mean, I have started in that I, I did before, before um, the, the lockdown, I had one local student, a, a singing student, and I've still been teaching her online over Zoom. But I find online is difficult, particularly when you're only trying to learn new techniques and you're listening to very subtle things in people's voices and you've only got that computer audio to, to be diagnosing those kind of problems. So I felt a little bit hesitant from advertising it wider yet. Though I'm getting more, like even just with her, I'm getting more and more experience all the time to that point. So yeah, now I'm pretty much very new in that that part of the journey but you know I'm doing all the usual things getting a website together and um yeah and I'm doing this course um it's um the Institute for Vocal Advancement it is like an international 
internationally recognized course of training that you know has a whole bunch of different levels i think it's like 10 years worth of training if you keep taking it through to the end game but i mean you can do definitely do level one two and three which give you some decent qualifications and a decent um technique to teach people with so i'm pretty passionate about learning their technique so that's great and it's helping my own singing too which is awesome yeah oh cool yeah that's good yeah it, uh, everyone's a winner so, <laughs> uh, I was having a look at your website. I started reading your ADHD diary, and um, oh, yeah. the post that I was reading was up that, that you'd given up social media. So, is that is that still the case? Have you've done that? Well, not in lockdown, because it's your only way of kind of actually sort of reaching out to people. It was so funny that um, yeah, that you picked that one post because. That was really when I was uh, still touring and had my anxiety was really bad. Uh, and I realized that like checking in with this kind of ever scrolling kind of, yeah, that it was just, it was just stimulating me in a bad way. So it has been really interesting that since lockdown and since try realizing that um, I needed to find other sources of income really quickly meant getting back onto my Facebook page and engaging with the audience that are there and yeah, talking about the album. I've been doing these things um, on Facebook every week. I mean, I started off doing it every day for a couple of weeks, but then it got exhausting, but I call it the social distancing sing-along and I just go onto Facebook live just with the bass and my iPad connected to Wi-Fi and, and asks for requests, for live requests. And then people just ask for songs. And if I know the song even vaguely, I just look up the lyrics on my iPad and, and just have a go live just with the, just accompanying myself with the bass with the idea that people could also Google the lyrics and be singing along at home. And I've encouraged like people to send in videos and photos of themselves and that's been great. Yeah, on Fridays, um, I do two shows now. So I do one, one that kind of suits Australian and US time zones and then I do one at night which ends up being like sort of midday-ish for the UK so it gives a whole different like audience a chance to do it and um, that's been really 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 fun and also it's allowed allowed me to um, source an audience for a Patreon so I've got um, I got a little small baby Patreon happening and have managed to sell quite a few albums and also just get straight out PayPal donations from people who are just appreciating the sing-along and what I do. And so, yeah, so I'm like really active on social media now, but I think, I think I've got a better attitude to it now than I did then. I think then I still, my main focus was on how I was being perceived. So I would curate posts and then I would be obsessively logging back in to see what people were saying about what I said or what I posted. And I think that's what was doing my head in. And I think because I've come back to Facebook now for a practical reason, I just don't find myself going and scouring the replies anymore. Like the live videos get deleted along with all their comments as soon as they happen. And somebody made this beautiful analogy. They said it's like an illegal speakeasy that just appears and then disappears without a trace. And I thought, yeah, which probably isn't good because, of course, I'm doing a whole bunch of covers that probably I don't have any legal rights to. <laughs> 
Well, but, it's, it's the closest you can get to a live gig in lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been doing those as well. I've got one coming up on Sunday with um, one of my dearest friends who lives, uh, he lives here locally so we can get away with him coming. He's like one of the only people who I play with that I can sort of legally allow just him and me to be in the studio and do a, a performance yeah. like that. Yeah, but I've also, with the Patreon's got me writing too. I've kind of promised them a song a month. Right. And yeah, so I've been, um, I was, I mean, that's why I was up late last night and late to the interview was I was um, recording a brand new song I wrote yesterday to make a demo for the Patreon. And yeah, I, I'm suddenly realizing social media can be as amazing and beautiful as it can be ugly. It depends how you use it. Yeah. My dad, he could always build it. It would be solid, strong, last a thousand years through any storm, and it would be ugly. His touch was seldom gentle, but there was a love. My
Nice one. What a great song and what a great guest. Thanks once again to Liz Frencham. Check out the links in the show notes to Liz's music. Ragbag is back next week and let me tell you, it's a good one. I'm not in it. My doppelganger is. If you like Ragbag with Frank Burton, you're going to love Hodgepodge with Bert Finkelstein. You just have to wait until next week to find out what that's all about. Excited? I am. Make sure you check it out. While you're doing that, also check out frankburton.co.uk. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more.